there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Fair at Knoxville, Tennessee opened the first in America since 1974, attracting over 11 million visitors by the time it wrapped up in October. President Ronald Reagan began a series of weekly five-minute radio broadcasts. IBM released the landmark PS-DOS version 1.1 software. Film historian Leonard Malt made his first appearance on Entertainment Tonight, and somewhere in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a kid named Drew McQueenie had his 12th birthday party with a group of friends at a theater showing one of the films featured in this May of 1982. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, as always. I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg, here on 80s All Over. Hi, it's me, Scott Weinberg, from 80s All Over. This is weird for me, because this is the month where, really, I start having full sensory memories of this summer. Because I know who I was, and I know where I was, and I remember the screens I saw the films on, and I remember who I saw the R-rated films with, and which ones I didn't get to go. So it's really weird. This is where things start to kind of fold time and space for me. Yeah, I mean, we've covered some really good months, and some great films, and even some blockbuster months, but I think with this month, and then leading into June, our next episode, June of 1982, is kind of like the moment... Hollywood just stepped off the water slide and is now splashing down the uh, down the slide. Uh, June of 1982 would pretty much change Hollywood forever. May was kind of an interesting lead-in because it's an, it's like a combination of uh, obscure smaller films and a couple beloved blockbusters. I was the same age that Toshi is now, and I look at him and how young he is. These movies, to me, still feel very fresh. And going back and looking at this stuff this month, I'm amazed at how active a lot of this stuff still is in yeah, my life. Yeah, it's a good point how, uh, for example, we won't get to it for several episodes, but to me, uh, Raising Arizona is evergreen because it was the first film that I like was able to step out my comfort zone, see it. I saw it by myself, and I absolutely fell in love with it. When when you hit these certain movies that just grow in your heart, you know, that they, they make you the movie geek that you are, if not the person. So this month we will start off with an obscure Death Wish wannabe that is pretty dull, not entirely terrible, thanks mainly to a, a game cast shot in my beloved hometown of Philadelphia. It's Tom Skerritt. Mm, <clears throat> sorry. I think it should always be said like that. Tom Skerritt. In fighting back. Every 24 minutes, a murder is committed. 
Every 18 minutes, a robbery occurs. Every seven minutes, someone is mugged. I draw the line. All you got lies in this community here. For John D'Angelo, enough is enough. We have got to move. Nobody makes me move. John D'Angelo will do anything to make his neighborhood safe. He's fighting back. Rated R. Clearly inspired by the Death Wish series, Drew. Kind of a, a mild exploitation-y vibe mixed with sort of an earnest social commentary about what a community can do to fight back against organized crime or, or rampant crime. Directed by Louis Teague. I always feel like Louis Teague walks that line between being a pure exploitation filmmaker and a guy with aspirations to be a little better than that. He's not just an exploitation filmmaker. He understands that if you give it just that little extra bit of meat, it makes all the exploitation stuff pay off. Yeah, he's an accomplished journeyman B-movie maker. I like Louis Teague. He also directed Cujo and Cat's Eye. Uh, fighting back, I loved the 1980 Philadelphia. To me, this was a fascinating little uh, time capsule. Yafet Kato is great in this. Uh, he doesn't have much to do until about halfway through. Tom Skerritt is fed up with the crime running rampant through his Philadelphia neighborhood, specifically the park next door, which is Fairmount Park. But then they kind of get into like the whole fascist angle because it's like Tom Skerritt walking around his neighborhood at, you know, two o'clock at night. And they're all in kind of like these uniforms and they're like walking into bars and like eyeing people up and down like that guy looks like a pimp. Let's go. You know, and so now it goes from like well-intentioned vigilantes to you guys are kind of fascist stormtroopers at this point. In some ways, it's, I think it's even more interesting than Death Wish because it's not just about, oh, somebody really hurt my family and now I want to kill criminals. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit deeper than that. It's, a, it's not just, oh, if we kill that pimp, then everything is solved. This week, we have some groupings going on because there's this one. And then I think our next film, Baker County, USA, to me, fits neatly as sort of a bookend to it. <laughs> and students against a self-appointed lawman who wants them all wrapped. Trapped, starring Henry Silva as a one-man death machine. You're not gonna get away with this! Trapped, death may be the only escape. Starring Henry Silva, Nicholas Campbell, and Barbara Gordon from Manson International. It's one of those movies that I'd never heard of until we started doing this, and then tracked it down, and it's also available under the title Trapped. It's not bad, considering what it is. And I, I, I walked in kind of expecting nothing because I'd never heard of it. It's not only fairly clever in terms of the, the setups and payoffs for the individual like kills and things that happen, but... It's decent at setting up why everything's in, in motion. And it's really kind of well shot for a hillbilly thriller. Basically, Henry Silva's a, a domineering ladies' man leader of this sleazy backwoods hillbilly gang. He, he reminds me of, like, Charles Durning in Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And, of course, five of the dumbest college kids you'll ever see in your life witness the murder and now have to run for their lives through the through the forest. And uh, the main kid, Nicholas Campbell, it was driving me nuts while watching this. And then I went and I looked and I realized, oh, fuck, yeah, it's the guy from The Brood. And this is what led me down the rabbit hole to realize that while it is full-on hillbilly exploitation, Baker County, USA is Canadian through and through. And when you talk about the uh, the cinematography, Mark Irwin also shot The Brood and Videodrome and Dead Zone. Like, he was Cronenberg's boy for many years. He shot Scanners. It's a Canadian 
exploitation film, but you would not know it just from looking at the movie. It feels very much like it is meant to be America's hillbillies. There's a, a middle-aged woman who's very serious, and people approach her with a lot of caution. That's played by Barbara Gordon. The other women look like they all fell out of Playboy. I mean, it is just junk, but like there's some chase scenes that are intense, like well shot, well cut. Suffers a little bit from a few too many of these scenes where they're like, these are our laws and our land, and you, you know. Oh, Henry Silva chews scenery quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, I'm thinking, all right, movie. man, you covered this diatribe eight minutes ago. Get to the chasing and the chomping and the stomping. I think they paid him in monologues. Yeah, and 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 it does. I do have a problem that the the, the teenagers are quite that stupid. Let's go back and get our sleeping bags. Or, or or fuck your sleeping bags and just run. Yeah. Oh, bleh. yeah. Yeah. So fighting back and trapped. Neither of them need to be uh, exactly uh, dug up and resurrected and savored, but they're kind of watchable. We're going to actually group these next two as well because they are very similar in what they are in terms of construction. They're just radically different things that they captured. Our next two films are both documentaries. They are both performance-based documentaries. And they are both time capsules. The first one focuses mainly on music, and I think you'd probably know more about this. Well, I am, I am a big fan of Erg, A Music War. Suppose they gave a music war. I need this! And everybody came. And they kept on coming. 34 bands. And we'll never play the prom. Thirty-five more, and you'll never hear in an elevator. This time they've gone too far. Erg, a movie. Uh, it's a concert film shot, I believe, in New York, L.A., London. Focus on all over the place. Yeah, that's and I like that it's not one concert; that it is really meant to capture a scene, and it's punk rock, new wave, and post-punk so it's bands that cover a pretty wide range and you want to talk about having a like chemical flashback while you're watching something orchestral maneuvers in the dark and the go-go's and oingo boingo and the cramps and x and xdc and joan jet this is unbelievable wall of voodoo the police the flesh tones there's lots of dead kennedys i i'm one of those people who gets really impatient with music that is not like my own music if it's a song on the radio, I'm the guy who'll flip the channel. I'm just annoying when it comes to music. With the bands and the songs that I knew, I was like, oh, I like this. But then I found that even the bands that I didn't like all that much, I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not tempted to fast forward. And that's the thing is there's some obscure stuff here. And even bands that you know well, not everybody does just their greatest hit. Like Wall of Voodoo Mexican Radio is probably the song that most people know. Love that song. Love it. But I love that they play back in flesh here because I think Stan Ridgeway comes across really. Yeah, I think see, I, I like that, but I didn't know that song. I my, I only knew Wall of Voodoo. My parents had a uh, when I was younger, and my parents were together, and we lived in a relatively new house in Northeast Philadelphia. Actually, it was a brand new house, but it wasn't particularly fancy. And my dad had been saving for years, and one day he finally got a Wurlitzer 1963 jukebox that had the little the, the record player on a track, went back and forth, and it would pick up the 45 and play it down. And Mexican Radio was one of the songs that my sister put in that jukebox. And we probably listened to that song, no lie, every day for a year. There are performances here that stop things cold. Klaus Nomi performs for, I am fairly sure, seven hours in the middle of the film. And it is pretentious, 
garbage. It is the most insane performance, and it goes on and on and on. I love when we discover these musical documentaries like uh, Beatlemania, F you, and this one, because A, we are turning people on to obscure film document, uh, music documentaries they may never have heard of, plus B, they're really easy to cover. If you are interested in the early new wave band, this is an interesting uh, snapshot. It's not a particularly, uh, you know, fascinating or insightful th- uh, film about the process, but it is a great snapshot of these bands in 1981. And unless Drew has something else to add about Erga Music War, we're going to move on. We can move on. And the connective tissue here between our, this and our next film is The Police. Um, because Stuart Copeland and Miles Copeland of IRS Records were major organizers for the secret policeman's other ball. My fellow Americans, I'm speaking to you as a representative of the oral majority. We're affiliated with the illegitimate daughters of the American Revolution and the Right to Lice Party, Baltimore branch. I wish to address the controversy over this new comedy motion picture, The Secret Policeman's Other Ball. Now, I'm not a man given easily to superlatives, but The Secret Policeman's Other Ball is undoubtedly the most depraved, corrupt, scandalous, odious, rank, foul, filthy, lewd, vile, rotten, sordid, tasteless movie since The Sound of Music. Should we risk being perverted by the sight of Peter Cook and Monty Python's John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Michael Palin and Terry Jones interfering with pregnant women, impersonating schoolgirls and flogging several dead horses and convorting in underpants with semi-naked wenches? Not to mention rock stars playing with themselves. The secret policeman's other ball must be banned. But don't take my word for it. Go and see for yourself. You'll find I'm right. And I've never even seen it. Thank you. Now, I didn't know much about this stuff as a kid. I, I like most nerds, uh, was attracted to Secret Policeman's Other Ball, basically because I was a Monty Python nut, and I had already seen everything, including Live at the Hollywood Bowl, and now for something completely different. It is the second in a series of British concerts that were organized for Amnesty International. It is not a full-bore Monty Python film. John Cleese and Graham Chapman feature prominently. Michael Palin appears very briefly. And it's basically a variety show of some comedy shtick. A lot of it is good. Some of it's not. And it's an interesting moment because it's the crossover between old school Python and that era of comedy. And then younger guys like Alexi Sale from The Young Ones or Rowan Atkinson. So seeing that collision, just seeing John Cleese on stage with Rowan Atkinson doing a sketch. If you're a comedy nerd at all, that's kind of a remarkable moment and is very much a passing of the torch generationally. And the other thing is, and for, for those of us who grew up in the 80s, Live Aid was maybe the biggest benefit show of all time. And Live Aid wouldn't have happened without the Secret Policeman's other ball. Bob Geldof is a contributor here, and literally, when asked to do it originally, said, ah, those things don't help. And this was the moment where he saw a direct reaction between what he did and what happened because of it, and it led him then to become more and more of an activist and eventually led to Live Aid. So this is a kind of a historic moment, and these shows are legendary because of what they ended up doing. Uh, well, it is a documentary feature. I believe it is the feature debut of Julian Temple, who is directed Absolute Beginners and without question one of the best music video directors ever. I think his direction is nothing here. I think he does. He shoots it like you shoot a live oh, yeah. show. No, no. I, I wouldn't say it's particularly creatively directed, but it is interesting to note Drew in that he is an established musical filmmaker. Sure. God. I just was. I honestly, I kind of wanted to see something more from him because I thought, you know, Julian Temple and 
you know, somebody else directed the stage show, so that's not even his. And it's weird because they made a big deal. Martin Lewis, the guy who is one of the big producers, there's the version of this that I saw as an introduction with Martin Lewis. And he talks about what a get it was for them to get Julian Temple, um, who had just done the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, the Sex Pistols documentary we covered. So he really had a lot to prove here. It's basically point four cameras at the event and then cut it together. And, like, that's the minimum that you have to do for this kind of concert film. And it's weird because Julian Temple would go on to be known as a very interesting visual director. But you're right. In many ways, it is kind of perfunctorily directed. The other thing that's strange here is there's several versions of this movie. There's a U.K. version. There's an English, uh, an American version. And the American version is the very first film. And I, we're going to tread lightly here and move quickly. But this this was the very first film that was bought and distributed by the Weinsteins. And this was the movie that basically then allowed them to start to build their company because this was a fairly big hit for them because it cost nothing. But they re-edited largely. And when they did that, the American version of this movie uses material from the original Secret Policeman's Ball as well as the Secret Policeman's Other Ball and cuts it so that you don't really know what you're looking at. I believe the version that is existent largely now is the UK version, the original version, because in reading about the comparisons, first of all, it's very hard to find on home video. But if you do find the VHS or you find the the uh, Laserdisc, um, what you'll find is the original movie, not the weird Miramax hack job that was put together. And it's great because the original version is, I think, a little bit more focused. You have some really strong performances. Sting by himself shows up to play Roxanne, A Message in a Bottle. Even even back then, the guy was just a great performer. I will also say that I think as performances go, i got to give a lot of credit to Phil Collins for his In the Air Tonight, uh, which is simply him on piano. And to hear how he rebuilds that song um, so that it's a quiet version. And, you know, everybody knows the drum fill. I love that he goes with silence for the drum fill here. It's a beautiful moment. From there, Drew, we're going to move on to a very similar film. It's Phoebe Cates and Willie Ames making love in paradise. A boy, a girl, a man obsessed, a battle, a death, a wilderness, rivers, sands, desert streams, fear. Rage, survive, and dream. The birth of love, a newfound life. Man, woman, paradise. Rated R. Starts Friday, May 7th at a theater near you. I want to do the pitch meeting? Sure. Hey, did you see Blue Lagoon? Uh, don't you knock before you enter it? Nope. <laughs> nope. This is that good an idea. Fucking screenwriter just walks into my office. How dare you? All right. I admire your hubris, young Drew McQueenie. <laughs> I, I have seen the Blue Lagoon. I am intrigued by your entreaty. What else do you have to tell me? No, that's it. Did you see Blue Lagoon? We should do that. Okay, but we'll have it take place in the, uh, in the desert. Yes. In, uh, in 1823. Yes, yeah, so no one sues us. But otherwise, yeah, it's pretty much that. Phoebe Cates and Willie Ames <laughs> run away from an evil sheik who wants to own her. They hide and make lerve and run away from the sheep. It was shot in Israel, and it has a scene with a masturbating chimp. <laughs> the, uh, the, the writer-director is Stuart Gillard, who would go on to direct Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Rocket Man. <laughs> or, teenage, oh, I'm sorry, Ooze. I think he did Secret of the Ooze. Yeah, he did the second one. The first one was Steve Barron. But yeah, that is quite the resume. And the thing about Paradise is, he, first of all, let's just go ahead and say... 
Phoebe Cates, and then sigh and pensively think for a few minutes because she is by far the ray of sunshine that makes a movie like this tolerable. Right, but that's what bothers me. It's like she is the ray of sunshine, but then you're looking at her and you're realizing that young woman, her getting butt naked and me waiting for it is the only reason I'm here. That's gross. I don't like that feeling. I, I'll just say this, though. Watching the movie, because I had not seen this. I remember when it came out and I just remembered that it, I dismissed it. The stuff where she's not being exploited, it's so clear that we failed Phoebe Cates. Because she is, and I'm not kidding, a ray of sunshine. When you see her in this, or you see her in Gremlins, or you see her in Fast Times, and not the pool scene, but any other scene, she is such an interesting, funny, super bright kid. Like, there is something about her. She's also very likable and charming and, and warm. And, you know, never been accused of being a Meryl Streep, but... I think deserved probably a better career. I, I do. I think if people had written more for her and, you know, there's a lot of these movies as we're going through the 80s where uh, young women were put in leads. And I think some of these young women did very well by terrible material. Women like Deborah Foreman or women like Phoebe Cates, where they were given garbage for the most part. Even Betsy Russell, for God's sake, is more interesting than 90 percent of what she was given. And that is the big frustration in these movies. I am so irritated by the failure to figure out anything else to and do with it. it's not them. just that it's dated and we're like a little more uh, aware of how women are treated in popular culture. It's not just that. It's literally a waste of talent. Yeah, it's a frustration as, as somebody who loves actors and realizing that so many of these, so many young women are so failed by 90% of what they're asked to do. And it is frustrating because you want to be able to celebrate the good things they do but at the same time, you tell somebody to watch something like Paradise for even 10 good minutes of E.B. Cates, and it's an exploitation titty film. And that is disappointing. It's just really dull when it's not being, not even sexy, but sexual. I could use that exact same description for another film. little movie by a guy named Just Jackin. Lady Chatterley's Lover. D.H. Lawrence's classic masterpiece is now a major motion picture. Sylvia Crystal stars with Nicholas Clay and Shane Bryant in this dramatically compelling and erotically explicit movie. First, a romantic novel. Now, a powerful film. Sylvia Crystal stars as Lady Chatterley, Shane Bryant as her husband, and Nicholas Clay as Lady Chatterley's lover. Coming soon. First of all, this guy's this guy's name has got to be the most insane name of all time. Okay, just Jackin or just Jakin. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's J A E C K I N. It sounds like a Bart Simpson prank call. Eh, uh, anybody here? Just Jakin? <laughs> Who's just Jakin back there? Oh, uh, <laughs> I did a good mode. Uh, this is a French softcore erotica director. That's who Just Jakin is, who was an international success with Sylvia Crystal in a film called Emmanuel and would soon go on to direct a wildly bad film with Tony Katane called The Perils of Gwendolyn. In the land of Yik Yak or whatever no, it's called. No, you weren't going to let that go. Okay. <laughs> right. But but in between in between those... Just Jakin did a an adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's uh, famous and infamous erotica novel, or, or 
what do we call it, a romance with a dirty mouth, uh, however you would describe Lady Chatterley's Lover. I know it was controversial in its time for being explicit and somewhat profane. I've never read it because I, I don't I don't like reading about sex. It, it bothers me. I, I, I don't eat dinner with women when they're alone. I don't. <laughs> Thank you, Vice President. Thank you, Vice President. I, I think it's just strange to watch people make love in movies. Why would I want to watch that? I mean... I think Sylvia Christel and Just Jakin are a perfect combination in that they... You nailed it with the last film. Dull. It's weird how boring these movies are. And they really do simply exist to get from one softcore scene to another. I get that that's the exploitation. I get that that's what they're selling. But to do so little with what's between it just seems like you're there. You're already in right. the room. I mean, if you've got like three and a half sexy moments and you need to build yeah. a lot of like connective tissue, just make it slightly more interesting than this. Good God, people. I don't know if it's a, a faithful adaptation, having not read the source material. I, if the source material is this dull, I can't imagine why it ever became so controversial. So there. All right, Scott, we're going to hustle through these next four. We're going to do a quick roundup here of horror films. I want you to walk me through these, man. I saw four. I got feelings. Drew, why don't you describe to our viewers the plot of Zombie Holocaust? A.K.A. Dr. Butcher, M.D. A.K.A. Nightmare City, A.K.A. Zombie 3, A.K.A. Zombie Dance Party, A.K.A. Zombie Orgasm. I don't know, there's 95 movie titles for this film, and um, none of them fit. It is... <sighs> Basically, it's set in an all-you-can-eat morgue. Let's put it that way. It's sort of a weird Italian combo plate of, like, a basic, gory, splattery horror film, and then out of nowhere... It suddenly turns into a Dr. Moreau knockoff with zombies. It feels like they had two different movies that they didn't know what to do with, and they went, I don't know, just just shoot some shit to connect them. Wouldn't surprise me at all if they had two half movies and they grabbed <laughs> together. I, I, I have a soft spot for Italian schlock, but I have my limits. This is not Fulci level. This is not even like Sergio Martino level. This is just inept. I guess what would have been like a video nasty in the UK was just considered like a badge of honor film to kids in the U.S. And we used to walk past this VHS cover, and it's a Dr. Butcher M.D., and it, we knew it was Italian. And when you would see an Italian name on a VHS box, we went, ooh, because all we knew was that meant super gory. And it's the kind of thing where when it gets to the gore, they throw so much red at you so fast, and then they move on, and there's zero... They don't even have the showmanship to sell the gore. And if you're going to watch this kind of movie... That's what you're watching for, I would assume. And even that, they kind of have their shoelaces tied together. And it, it's almost like a third generation. It's like, oh, all right, all these fun, colorful Italian filmmakers decided that they wanted to knock off Dawn of the Dead. Fine. But this feels like somebody who's knocking off those knockoffs. And it's like, wait a minute. Don't emulate a Fulci. Emulate the source. Scott, I, sm I smell something. Is it... Did Jim Wynorski write the next movie? Oh... Ladies and gentlemen, why does Jim Wynorski have to be mentioned on our podcast? <laughs> All right, fine. Because we picked the 80s. This is another alien knockoff from the Corman machine, also known as Mutant, but most people in America know it as Forbidden World. Forbidden World. The seed is planted. The nightmare grows. Hey, help me. Start Friday in a theater near you. Check newspaper for theater in showtime. It is uh, recycled uh, audio and, and video 
from Battle Beyond the Stars and Galaxy of Terror. It is a, a bio monster loose on a remote planet facility. And as a guy who really likes the this subgenre, uh, this one is not good. From the director of Grunt, the wrestling movie. Scream Factory put it out. Scream Factory did the next film, too. And I only realized that because I had the old Blue Underground DVD, which no longer played, and then realized that on my shelf, I had the Blu-ray that they had sent me. And what film is that? Well, that would be William Shatner and Lee Grant in Visiting Hours. In this hospital, your next visit may be your last. All visitors, please leave the hospital. <laughs> Dr. Len. Visiting hours, so frightening, you may never recover. Starring Lee Grant, William Shatner, Linda Pearl. This is another stalker messing with a newscaster. What, what is that? Well, it's, fu- it's funny because it's literally a movie about a guy who's watching the news and goes, hey, I'm going to go kill that Maldi broad because she had an opinion. Michael Ironside sees Lee Grant talking about violence against women on television and as if to prove her point, decides <laughs> he must attack her. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're right. <laughs> but I mean, isn't this the same plot as the seduction? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And Michael Ironside in this, dude, he goes for it. He is, first of all, unrecognizable in the first scene. I didn't even know it was him. My favorite detail is that he walks around in white beater tank tops the entire movie, and he's got just enough of a gut that it doesn't work. It's awesome. He is flabby giant psycho. This is uh, another one of those Canadian tax shelter horror films that were very prevalent in the 80s, and then many studios uh, fortuitously for the Canadian producers, snatched them all up. What? My Bloody Valentine, we'll take that. What else you got? Oh, happy birthday to me, we'll take that. Oh, what's this, visiting hours? Whoa. And they have, like, names that people in America know, and they're in English. Perfect. It's got shades of Halloween 2 and Hospital Massacre. Fox distributed it. It's got Shatner, Linda Pearl from Happy Days, Harvey Atkin from Meatballs. Again, I hate to keep breaking out this this old standby, but... It's really dull. Well, and look, that is a real problem. If you're going to ask me to commit a hundred minutes to your psycho chasing a woman around a hospital movie, fucking figure it out, man. Just just give me something to hold on to for those hundred minutes. I tell you, you cut this movie down to eighty-one minutes, and I'd probably give it a half of a recommendation. You know, it's got a little bit of you know Ironside's performance does make it a little bit scary. I feel bad for Lee Grant. Lee Grant looks in half of this movie like she didn't know what she signed up for. She looks like she's being bounced off walls. There is stuff I love when he's attacking the elevator and she takes her shoe off and does the the lightest like tap on his knuckles with it. She is in a different movie and and not totally aware of what the standards for these movies are. And God bless him, William Shatner shows up eight times and it's always just to walk in and pronounce something and then leave he has no bearing on the plot at all he's there to catch everybody up it's like ah so you've been attacked again my god what did you say on news (laughs) you can't just talk about anything but bill shatner i have a right to go on the news and talk about uh, violence against women even if this psychotic might come after me in a hospital don't you get that they don't like it when you do that i like what's the point of this movie like, don't talk about these things because the cycle might come get you? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's literally don't mouth off on the news. So we go from one dreary HBO staple to another slightly more obscure but slightly more interesting HBO staple. It is a silly but oddly entertaining horror film called 
the house where evil dwells. They were strangers from the West, learning to live in harmony with their new home. Everything seemed perfect. Until they learned the truth about the house where evil dwells. It happened 100 years ago, and now it's about to happen again. The house where evil dwells. This put me to sleep twice the first time I tried to watch it. At least it's an American horror film that takes place in Japan, and therefore the change of setting, the scenery itself makes it slightly provocative. It's very weird as an idea, and it does feel like somebody, like they dropped two Americans into the grudge, but a really slow-motion, boring version of the grudge. But it's one of these, you know, there's there's a reason for the ghost, and the ghost is, and it's all tied to an emotional trauma, and... It's a young American couple who moves to a house, and then there's just a Japanese ghost story happening. Edward Albert and Susan George move into a house in Japan. Turns out that there was a love triangle and murder 150 years earlier. And then Doug McClure shows up, and guess what? That love triangle may repeat itself. Dun, dun, dun. It's got some pretty creative splatter in it. It does have, you know. And it's got killer crabs. Yes, it does have killer crabs. For a haunted house movie. It does get pretty gruesome. It's not just basically ghosts. It's it, it ghosts kind of mixed with slasher kind of. And this one, I never, I've never seen this movie on VHS ever. This was HBO or nothing. And I remember my grandmother just grabbed this one on V on a VHS tape with you know one or two other horror movies. And I was like, yes, they don't have this at Video Village. Yeah. Every time you talk about your grandmother, I think of her as Granny Boogans because of the tape she made you. So. I'm sorry, from now on, your grandmother is Granny Boogans in my, in my mind. Well, her first name was Thelma, so Boogans <laughs> is better. God bless you, Grandma. I miss you. Um, so, yeah, that, the House of Evil Dwells is a, is a kind of a fun obscurity. It's a little less dull than most 80s horror movies. It was just a foregone conclusion that Act 1 was going to be deadly dull in most cases, and that certainly is the case with both visiting hours and the house where evil dwells. But it's not the case in the next film we're about to cover, which is not a horror film at all. It's actually a poignant, odd, bittersweet comedic drama called The Escape Artist. It's funny you use the word odd. I, it's one of the words I wrote down as well. It's This was um, when Zoetrope, American Zoetrope, Francis Coppola's company, was trying to establish itself as an alternative studio in uh, Northern California. There was this burst of creativity. There was this burst of movies that they made. And some of them just sat on shelves. They couldn't get distributors. Two of those were Hammett and The Escape Artist. And it's weird because you can see how he was trying to build a sort of repertory company. Uh, some of the same cast from One from the Heart, which we just covered, is in here. Raul Julia, Terry Gar. And you have Caleb Deschanel, who's one of the greatest cinematographers of the 80s, directing the film. And it's written by Melissa Matheson. And it feels in some ways like this comes from the same place as The Black Stallion, which was also Zoetrope. The Black Stallion shot by Caleb Dish. And they're family films that aim a little deeper. They're not family films in the sense that they're like the next one we're going to do where it's sugary garbage. It's family films in that they are about young people, but try to have a more expansive or richer worldview. And I do think there's a lot going on in The Escape Artist. Uh, it's... Not entirely successful. It does go off in some kind of weird tangents. But for the most part, it's really quite interesting. It's just about a kid 
who uh, an, an offbeat kid who's trying to follow in his parents' footsteps as an illusionist slash escape artist, and uh, how he uh, gets tangled up with the son of a crooked mayor? The psychotic son of a crooked mayor. And I gotta say, Griffin O'Neill, who plays the main kid, um, it is spooky how much he looks like Tatum O'Neill. Like, they are peas in a pod, and... He's really interesting. I am so sorry that Griffin O'Neill got as far off track personally as he did because he's got a little bit of soul. He's a weird kind of caustic kid in some ways. What I love most is when you put him in scenes with people who are really playing, he doesn't give an inch. Raul Julia comes on hard in this film, and it is great. If you like Raul Julia, you've got to find the escape artist simply for him. And for one of the most magical bits of casting I've ever seen... He is the son in this movie of Desi Arnaz. And I would have never thought of that, but when you see them side by side, holy shit, it's awesome. Yeah, apparently he came out of retirement for this, and it's his last film role. Uh, the Escape Artist is something that uh, I think I saw like bits and pieces on HBO as a kid and kind of liked it. Uh, and, and I'm glad I revisited it. It's, it's not quite as, uh, doesn't work as a whole, but it's got a lot of really interesting components and a lot of... Uh, I'll say this. I, th I think it spins a lot of wheels really hard, and even though it doesn't do that to, to any effect in the end, moment to moment, scene to scene, it's kind of well-crafted and it pulls you along. There's a lot about it to enjoy. You know what there's not a lot to enjoy about? Ooh, would that be Savannah Smiles? Alvy and Boots on the run and having fun until they meet Savannah. Alvy, we got us a hot kid in the back seat there. Thanks for not turning me into the cops. The Driscoll child is in the hands of two desperate criminals, and to compound matters, they are not very bright. Why can't you get a getaway car that would get away? Don't be mad, Alvy. Savannah Smiles, the most delightful surprise of the year. Don't miss it. Two lovable bumbling. One played clothes. by 80s all over favorite Donovan Scott. The other played by writer-producer Mike Miller, who's terrible. Um, and it's got an, an interesting cast. It is saptastic. That's what I wrote down. This is a weird case where when the movie came out, it was originally released in Salt Lake City only. And it was paid for, I'm fairly sure, with Mormon money and was meant as a their sort of launching point for a company that would do... Sort of like the In Search of Noah's Ark, uh, the, that company, the family sort of faith-adjacent, even though they aren't faith-based. And it was a hit. It was a big hit in, in Salt Lake City. So when we're covering it right now, May, this is for the Salt Lake City release. It then later got picked up by a studio and released in December nationwide with a big push because they were like, oh, look at the money it's making locally. This is going to work. And it tanked when it went national. And dude, it's awful. Awful. It also is a film, the only film you'll ever see, that features Brigitte Nielsen, Michael Parks, and Pat Morita. It's the rare movie, and I don't do this often, but it's the rare movie that I had to watch in chunks. It took me a week to watch Savannah Smiles in about 10-minute chunks. I just couldn't. Have you checked your blood levels for diabetes? Oh, God, I am dying. And, you know, it's the same kind of subgenre as, like, the Apple Dumpling Gang, the kidnapping, where they learn to love the, the kidnappers. They're going for the uh, charming, ramshackle, live-action Disney comedy. It just doesn't work. It's well-intentioned. I mean, it's not, like, an offensive movie. It's just really poor. But the reason I think part of our generation knows Savannah Smiles at, at all is because most people might not know this, but HBO 
used to not play R-rated features. Uh, actually, the exact quote was, The following feature has been rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. It is intended for mature audiences and parental discretion is advised. Home box office will show this feature only at night. That obviously is no longer the case. So uh, you would have anything PG-ish, like Earthbound, which we covered, you know, and, and this, and uh, some of those Search for Noah's Ark stuff. Uh, a lot of that stuff played on HBO in the afternoons, especially weekend afternoons, because they were just something cheap they could show kids. And even as a kid, I was like, yeah, I would not have sat through this. Up until now, in this episode, we've been sort of talking about the, the smaller films and the regional films and the detritus of May. We are now moving into the bigger films of May, and this first film changed me. This was one of those experiences in a movie theater where I walked in one person and I walked out the other, thanks to The Road Warrior. In the future, cities will become deserts. Roads will become battlefields. And the hope of mankind will appear as a stranger. The Road Warrior. I don't know if it still stands. I don't. You might want to give this award to somebody else, but I would say for the longest time, this was the finest action film ever made. When you're talking about action and action shooting and how people did something, it might not be fair to compare a, a car oriented like this kind of action film to something like that Jackie Chan does or or Die Hard because they're going for completely different things. But it's still the film. It, when you look at the filmmaker and the way they think through action, the greatest action movies are the ones where every sequence, there's a series of setups and gains and payoffs, and they, the sequences themselves are so beautifully thought out and constructed, and the geography makes sense. It doesn't matter if it's Cars or if it's Jackie Chan or if it's... What, it matters how you think about these sequences. And what is clear is that George Miller hit the ground in this movie hungry to redefine the way this stuff was shot. If you just want to talk about how they shot car chases in this movie, it is end-to-end -end unbelievable. Here's my question, Drew. Do you think, because obviously everything in this film is a practical effect, of course, do younger movie geeks who were raised on digital effects, are they still able to fully appreciate the amount of work that went into that? I think they are, but I think that younger movie geeks have to look a little bit harder I would love for them to see it in a theater because I think that makes a difference. I think when you and one of the greatest moments of my life so far, uh, just in terms of professional accomplishment, was being able to introduce the screening of the Road Warrior at South by Southwest right before Fury Road came out, and George Miller came and we did the Q and A afterwards, and just being able to talk to him about the Road Warrior on stage and being able to, to get stories from him, and then over the course of that the year that Fury Road came out. I ended up interviewing Miller like five or six times and ended up spending, I don't know, eight or nine hours total with him. So I got everything out of my system and then some. Like, I, I really got to the point where I was very comfortable around him. And listening to him talk about this stuff and listening to him talk about the shooting, he knows that they were crazy and that it's a miracle that it all came together and that they were reinventing things ground up while they were shooting it. There is a great short documentary that is on one of the DVDs, I think. I think it's on the DVD that came in the snap case for The Road Warrior, and then I haven't seen it again since. But it's it's about 11 minutes, and it's a behind-the-scenes of The Road Warrior, made at the time. 
and it is one of the funniest accidental things I've ever seen because they show you the setup for like eight or nine of the stunts. And every time they'll show you the setup and the Australian narrator's like, they're going through very careful preparations to make sure that everything is ready. The stuntmen are getting ready. They're talking it out with George Miller. Everything looks good. They're good to go. And now here's the stunt. And something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> Every single time they go to, and then something has gone terribly wrong. And the funniest one is after what I consider the greatest stunt in movie history. This guy in a car chase hits something, launches out of the car that he's in, and then goes end over end, head over toe, straight at the camera. It looks like they had to have planned it and rigged it. Accident. He wasn't supposed to do that. That's not the way that stunt's supposed to work. That guy not only lived, but was the stunt coordinator for Fury Road, which blew my mind because I was sure, watching the movie, he was dead. There's no way anybody got up from that stunt. Stunning. Some of the visual uh, trickery that that is done in this film, and just plain old stunt work. Something has gone terribly wrong. My favorite thing about The Road Warrior is that, as a kid growing up, you're comfortable in this... I was comfortable with E.T., and Spielberg and Americana, that was obviously a kid's wheelhouse. But then every once in a while, you, you would come across something that um, was a little bit exotic. And, you know, to most movie geeks, you wouldn't call The Road Warrior an Australian film in English all that exotic. Because it's not in the grand scheme of things. But to a 12-year-old who's trying to get his friends to sit down and watch something that's not Police Academy, it's pretty exotic. And I feel like I had to physically force my friends to watch this movie. And I am not kidding. They probably, we probably watched it eight or ten times over the next five years. And every time my friends talked about it or played it, I thought, that's me. I did that. Because there's no fucking way they would have watched that movie if I didn't make them. And I think that is like the one of the original seeds of wanting to be a film critic and a film writer is that I felt great. Because I turned them onto a movie that now they love. They would have seen it eventually. But I made them watch it. And now they're so excited about it. And that just made me feel good. The way I saw this film the first time um, was very expensive and almost led to my death. I was on vacation with my parents. And it was playing on the on-demand hotel service. I would wait until they left. I would rent it. I would watch five or ten minutes. And then when they come back, I would turn it off. I did that over the course of the weekend, over and over. So when we went to check out, they asked my dad if he enjoyed The Road Warrior 11 times. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think my dad paid $70 for me to watch The Road Warrior surreptitiously. I don't believe in uh, corporal punishment, but I would, I would have beaten you. Uh, look, look, here's the bottom line. All right. You and I, like, this is like the Casablanca or the uh, uh, Gone with the Wind of action films. If you've not seen The Road Warrior, I don't get why you're even listening to this podcast. I'm surprised you even know how technology works. <laughs> Go to hell. I don't want anything to do with you. Our next film. I would understand if this next film is not on your list of your favorites because it's a weirdo, but it's a weirdo that's very close to my heart. A movie that I saw as a kid because I was desperately and still am enamored, crazy in love, absolutely the hugest fan of Steve Martin. And I really do admire the weirdness of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Steve Martin, the funniest comedian who ever lived, is Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Oof. No criminal is too tough for him. No pain is too great. No joke too disgusting when Steve Martin finds out why 
beat you! I'll buy two tickets. Starts Friday at a theater near you! I think Carl Reiner is my favorite Steve Martin collaborator. Uh, All of Me, The Jerk, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Man with Two Brains, I love them together. And I think that the movies have aged very well. And I think part of that is because a lot of people were chasing trends or they were trying to work in particular styles or comedies were uh, riffs on things that were in pop culture at the moment. I think Martin and Reiner were off the reservation, just doing their own thing from film to film. And it was goddamn beautiful Between when they Between Pennies from Heaven, he followed up the jerk with Pennies from Heaven and now this. It almost feels like he was like, look, I'm a success. I'm not going to just do the jerk six times. I want to do something odd. These are not necessarily simple vehicles like Chevy Chase was trying to do. These are slightly odd and admirably weird movies. Part of what I love in this is that I think Steve Martin is classic movie handsome. And I think him playing a detective and in those clothes and cut into those movies, he fits. Like, he drops in perfectly. Yeah, he is a, is a fun gumshoe parody named Rigby Reardon. He is approached by a beautiful femme fatale as played by the stunning Rachel Ward. And um, she uh, hires him to look into a predictably elaborate uh, detective story that is, is pulled straight out of 1940s uh, detective films, novels, and especially film noir. And oddly, a fairly well-built mystery. Yeah, and, and the, the reason that Drew says odd is because one particular thing about this movie is very strange. It is not just a satire of 40s uh, detective and films more. It is also a really interesting experiment in that 19 different films, all from the 40s, have been spliced into the film so as to interact mostly, mostly with Steve Martin. It does make the plot a bit convoluted. I love that he has such a hate relationship with Humphrey Bogart, that every time he talks to him, he talks to him like he's an asshole. Oh, he's got this bit where he's trying to get Humphrey Bogart to always wear a tie. It's so funny. Uh, there's a lot of bits that don't work. There's just like the movie opens with like some weird bit where he's groping her boobs and you're like, I I like Alan lag quite a bit. I I think his scene with, with Rigby is great. I do think that the mystery itself, the way it plays out, I mean, there are mysteries from the forties, real mystery films from the forties adapted from Hammett and Chandler and things like that, where you lose sense of who did what. And even the filmmakers got confused as they were making them. Big sleep is a great example of that. What I love about this is that while it is convoluted, I actually like the mystery. I think the mystery works as an interesting mystery. One of the things that I do think really, really works about this film is the seamless way they did this. And part of that was by going and actually hiring the people that worked on it. Edith Head, the revered costume designer, this was her last movie. And the notion that she made the clothes you're looking at in the actual 19 clips from those 40s films, and that she dressed the people that are in the 80s film, that is such a beautiful thing that only Hollywood can really do. It was also, I believe, the final film of composer Miklos Rosa, who is, it's like, the music is not playing jokes. The, the, the screenplay and Steve Martin are playing jokes. That score is earnest, and it's beautiful. It really feels like it was pulled directly out of a 1944 movie. I, I Like most movie geeks, I went through my film noir phase a few years ago, And I probably saw 100, maybe 125 of them in two years. I just went nuts. I would say, if you want to get into film noir, this film is a great entry point. It did serve that purpose for me in 82. It started me looking for these movies. And I I have such a fondness for this. And more than anything, if I ever meet Steve Martin, I want to ask him how the hell he did the coffee trick. Our next film is mainly interesting to me because without 
this movie happening, Popeye wouldn't have happened. And we went over that in our commentary for Popeye, which we you can go back and listen to. Today we'll be talking about the other end of the equation. Annie is here, says Gene Shalit, NBC. The New York Daily News says four stars. Carol Burnett is a constant source of laughter. Wouldn't you like to see the bedroom? My little billiard ball. Pat Collins of CBS says Annie's the 4th of July, a day at the beach, and a summer vacation. Carol Burnett certain to win an Oscar. Why any kid would want to be an orphan is beyond me. Rated PG. So let's do our role play. I'm the executive, and uh, we're both executives for Columbia. Hmm, we got the rights to Annie, arguably the biggest musical in 50 years. Who do we get to do it? <laughs> Let me see, who's never done a musical before? Let's get John Houston to direct Annie. Perfect. Ay ay ay. Now, having said that, he does a decent job. It's got a nice look and a nice kind of a nice pacing. And it is a throwback to the old big Hollywood musical, and there is a lumbering quality to that. It's one of those scores where there's five or six giant songs, and those giant songs carry everything else. And when you get to the, the staging of a scene like Hard Knock Life, which that is, that is one of those songs that is undeniably catchy and memorable, and a huge moment in the, the play in terms of establishing these girls and what they live through and how their daily life is. And all I could think was about the logistics of how he shot it. Because it's so elaborate, and there's shots, you look up the stairwell, and there's 80 orphans singing at you at the same time, and it's all very fetchingly staged, but it smothers it. And I, I do think it is buried so far under all the effort to get it on screen that, you know, you've got casting like Albert Finney, who comes in swinging. you got Carol Burnett, who, this might be the closest she ever came to truly putting it all together on a movie screen. Yeah, she steals the movie. I like Tim Curry. I like Bernadette Peters. I, I think Albert Finney is quite good, I, uh, to be honest. In many ways, I feel like he's playing Houston. Like, I think there's there's some vocal stuff going on, and there's a gruffness that is very much identified with Houston. I hate saying this, because this sounds mean, and she's a little girl, and it's not her. She didn't make the decision. She didn't cast herself. I think Eileen Quinn is kind of a smiling zero. She's very cute when she's standing still and singing, but she's a 75-year-old professional in an 11-year-old body, and there's a phoniness and a brassiness to that that puts me off. And it is, it is that Broadway kid thing. The character is one broad, brassy thing, and that's it. There's no room for nuance or characterization or subtlety. It is just one note, and that note has to be played to the person in the back of the theatrical audience. And John Huston, in my opinion, doesn't seem to have realized, hey, a movie is more intimate. It's a huge problem. This movie is ca it's played like they're playing the stage production, and it is so loud. Tim Curry, very well cast. You can't go too wrong casting Tim Curry as a sleazy weirdo. You know, Bernadette Peters, when we talk about Steve Martin and Pennies from Heaven and he, uh, Steve Martin was supposed to play the Tim Curry part, but they had broken up recently, and uh, I, I assume that it was, you know, too uncomfortable or, or painful to work with. I'm o I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because we got Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid as a result. So yeah. So our apologies to the people out there who desperately love Annie. Please don't send us hate mail. It is a uh, charming in some regards and overbearing and obnoxious in other regards. Would you agree, Drew? I would. I I think that if you love the musical, you probably already like this movie to some degree. I would imagine that even some fans of the stage musical probably have some, some issues with the adaptation. Now we move on to a Sean Connery stinker from a really good director, Wrong is Right. Two, 
one, switch. In a moment, World War III. But first, a word from our sponsors. TV superstar reporter Patrick Hale is on to the most incredible story of his career. Attack now, Mr. President. Hit him first. Good guys never shoot first. Why not? The bad news is it may result in World War III. The good news is his ratings are going through the roof. Wrong is right. Rated R. In a moment, World War III. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, that's the tagline. But to tell you just how fucked this is, the poster then goes on for seven paragraphs to try and explain it. Dude, I have never seen more text on a poster than this, man. It doesn't help. It really, like, Neighbors had this, too. And it seems like if you have multiple paragraphs on your poster, your screenplay's a mess. Your 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 editing is a mess because nobody needs that much explanation on a goddamn poster. I don't know poster. what Richard Brooks was thinking. This is based on a book called The Better Angels. I have no idea what the book is like, but the, the film is about Sean Connery playing a TV reporter who gets stuck in the middle of this weird deal involving the U.S. government and terrorists all trying to buy two suitcase nukes. All right, so what I see here is a movie that so desperately wants to be Network meets Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And it has none of the pinpoint accurate satire. It has none of the venom. It is like, if you're going to be, if you're going to satirize, like, the military industrial complex or a target like network television. It's like, dude, you got to focus. You can't just you know, spray all over the place like an old dog. Well, look, and, and frankly, if you're going to do a satire set in the Middle East, man, you, you better get it right because that is touchy stuff to be joking about and to be playing with, whether it's now or whether it's back in the, the early 80s. And I don't think this movie has any real sense of international politics or the way the CIA works or the way news works. That is the biggest thing to me, is if you're going to try and take on network news and kick it in the balls, get it right. Uh, Richard Brooks, most people will know, directed Blackboard Jungle, uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, In Cold Blood. I mean, this is an, an accomplished, intelligent filmmaker. And this seems like he just saw, like I said, Network and Dr. Strangelove and went, ah, I can do that. I would argue it takes a really talented filmmaker to make a mess like this. Because you're spinning a lot of plates. You've got a lot of people here that are trusting that you're going to pull it off. You've got Sean Connery. You've got that insane supporting cast. Clearly, you got Henry Silva playing uh, uh, someone from the Middle East, which this is a big month for Henry Silva playing all sorts of different things that he's not. But the, the great thing about Wrong is Right, if there is a great thing, which there isn't, but don't watch the opening credits and just watch the actors that you kind of love rattle across the screen George Grizzard, you probably don't know by name, but you know his face. I know him best as the dad from Bachelor Party, uh, and he plays the president. There's G.D. Spradlin, there's Henry Silva, there's John Saxon, Leslie Nielsen, Robert Weber, Hardy Krueger, Dean Stockwell, Catherine Ross. I love the Jennifer Jason Lee appearance at the very beginning. Oh, at the very beginning, Italia. She's so great. If this movie was even remotely funny, then I'd be like, give it a shot, because this cast is so colorful and eclectic. But it's just a mirthless collection of vignettes. And and here's the thing. If you're going to do a comedy that is that hinges on the idea that the president of the United States in a meeting said, I want the head of this Middle Eastern country killed, and the head of that country then starts buying nukes to kill the president of the United States, dude, figure out why that's funny if you're going to make it a comedy. What is funny about that? Your description right there, I went, oh, I want to see that movie. And I just watched it. 
It's so aimless, though. It is. It's just terrible. Now, for our UK listeners, you may only know this as the man with the deadly lens, but it was released everywhere else as wrong is right, which makes no sense. Whatever. Let's just move on to a refreshing, lovely movie, an early film from the great British director Bill Forsyth. Drew, let's talk about Gregory's Girl. That's disgusting. That's the sort of thing that gives football a bad name. It's in the bag. She's after me. She wants me to play with her at lunchtime. My, my, she wants you to play with her, eh? Gregory's Girl is not a love story, although it is a romance. It's the bittersweet problems of youth, the birth of the passions through which adolescence has to pass, the end of being a schoolboy, the first steps to manhood. This is a gentle story of the fun and the agony of growing up. The first spring of sexual awareness that leads to maturity. Look what a charming movie this is. And I had seen, I know Bill Forsyth, prior to this, he had directed That Sinking Feeling. And of course, growing up, I saw Local Hero. And a bit later on in the 80s, I saw Breaking In. This was his American breakout. And it's about a teen boy with a crush. That's the plot. Hey, what's a good way to talk to a girl? Hey, and this guy gives him bad advice. And this guy gives him good advice, and that advice doesn't work, and then he's embarrassed, and then he has a small victory, and then he has a small failure. And it is very honest, very earnest, and and it's really insightful. It reminded me in some ways of Lucas. Seeing this a month after Porky's, and this movie starts with a bunch of boys peeping on a girl while she's changing. It would be easy to, from that first scene, think, oh God, I'm going to be in for another one of these. It's going to be a lot of boys. It's going to be a lot of sexual politics I'm uncomfortable with. I would say the last 30 minutes of this movie so completely invert what you expect from this kind of film at all. I really love the young cast in this. I think John Gordon Sinclair, who plays Gregory, is a big weirdo, and God bless him. Uh, This kid is elbows and a bad haircut, a weird smile, and and he's got this great thing where he always feels like he's about to jump out of his skin because he's so awkward, but then every now and then turns that charm on and you're like oh there's the kid he's gonna be in a few years and it and you know what i've noticed it's funny you noticed that i noticed it too those moments become more prevalent as the film goes on yeah uh it's almost like he's growing up and becoming more confident and learning things from failures and successes i I don't want to get onto a tangent about this stuff but it means a lot to me i i really want to start highlighting some of these films that i think show young men in a good light i i I mean we're going to be covering so many films that are just base and either offensive or forgettable you know you can also be a good person as you're growing up one of the best things about this this screenplay by by forsyth is that he gives all the girls agency these girls are not simply adjuncts to the boys they're not there to either be dated or not dated by the boys and the way they educate him is so tender and so sweet and so smart and the the last like i said the last 30 minutes of this film take you down this this road that you're really not expecting narratively and the notion of who Gregory's girl is in the first place that that is a great title and it always really it makes me smile because it's such a charming title let's just say a lot of teen comedies kind of borrowed the template of he's after this girl but she might not she might be a little snobbier but then you look over here to the right and oh my goodness there's this other girl that I completely ignored you dummy I got to give young D. Hepburn credit because she plays Dorothy with such wisdom and with such presence at the age that she was at. And she knows 
that she is running roughshod over these boys. There's a great scene where he comes in to try and talk to her in the locker room. Um, she's the only girl on the soccer team, and so they have to make arrangements for her to get dressed in her own room and everything. And uh, Gregory comes in to talk to her and ask her out, and it's charming and awkward and sweet, and she accepts. And when he leaves again, the coach gets really uncomfortable. And when he goes to talk to Dorothy about it, I thought it was charming when he says, that boy, was he bothering you? And she gets this look on her face, and she's like, no, no, he's harmless. She knows. She knows that Gregory is not a problem. That Gregory is, he's just a boy who is trying to figure it out and who is attracted to her. And there's nothing from her part like she's upset about that, or she's, and she certainly doesn't make him feel bad about it. And the, not, the fact that she is so aware is really appealing the way it's written. Dig this one up and enjoy it. You will like it. We'll move on to another obscure romantic drama. It's called Rocky 3. What's your prediction for the fight? Pain. The critics are cheering for Rocky 3. A knockout. Still the champ. Fast and furious. Loads of fun. Great stuff. A blockbuster. A triumph. The best Rocky of them all. Rocky 3. One thing is clear looking at the way this film is directed. Sylvester Stallone has 100% jacked off the pictures of himself at some point. This is a film in which the male gaze is directed at someone to turn them into a piece of objectified meat, but the male gaze is Stallone's, and the body he's objectifying is his own. How many close-ups are there of Sylvester Stallone's thighs in slow motion? And if the answer is more than zero, that's fucking weird. I used to say that this was where the series turned into a comic book, but I think this I think Rocky Four is the one where it's really a comic book. I think this is the one that's right in the middle where it's still wrestling with being a real movie like the first one or wanting to go full popcorn, and it leans way towards the popcorn, definitely. I, this is where the template started of who will die in order for Rocky to be inspired to fight. And in this one, it's Mickey. And of course, in Rocky IV, it's Apollo Creed. And in Rocky V, it's every audience member's interest. And uh, I have, I'm okay with Rocky III. I don't love it. You know, obviously, Rocky holds a special place in my heart as a movie nerd from Philadelphia. Uh, Rocky III just seems like more of the same. Well made, well shot. It got me pumped up during the big fight at the end because I'm a normal human being. But it's a very generic, perfunctory, basic movie. The weird thing for me is that when you look back at the first film, Rocky's a mutant, and Adrian's a mutant, and Polly's a mutant. It is a movie about weird, little, marginalized people who barely fit anywhere, much less with the larger society. And it's that weird mutant finds mutant, and there's a mutant love story. And they're both. By this movie, Talia Shire looks like a million bucks, and Rocky's slick and greasy, and everybody's pretty and perfect. I feel like they kept Burt Young around just to have somebody who was still a mutant, so they could look back and go, remember when we all looked like that? We all looked like that in the first film. It's, oh, Rocky, success has gone to your head, and now you're rich and arrogant, and you know, you've gotten soft, and when you get soft and another challenger comes along, they're going to throw you for a loop. And kill your beloved old man manager. You got complacent, and now will you shake off that complacency and fight? It's the eye of the tiger. It's something, something. I'll fight. I will fight. Club Lang and Ivan Drago. Not a fan. No, but all right. Where would you place Rocky Three on the uh, on the in the franchise? Rocky and Creed are at the very, very top. 
I would put kind of Balboa and two right under that, and then three and four side by side, and then five is this thing that never actually happened, and we all pretend. Three is better than four. Come on. They both have their weaknesses. They both have their, their tendency towards the music video. But yes, three is better than four. I, I will agree with that. I think that they are very similar. Uh, if Rocky is a five-star movie and Rocky Two is a four-star movie, logically, this is a three-star movie. And <laughs> it's weird. Rocky Four is a two-star movie. Rocky Five, I hate. So there you go. Yeah, well, you're, you're right about that. So... I had a deal with my parents, which had to do with my grades, um, because, you know, like many people, I was easily distracted and I could get very, very, very uh, off track in school. So my parents had a deal with me, which was that for my birthday in 1982, I could pick any movie and I could take all of my friends to that movie, any movie. But I had to get all A's in order to do that. I have never worked harder to make sure that I got the grades that I wanted. And man, did it pay off because on my 12th birthday, I sat in a theater with my friends, surrounded, having the best time of my life as my mind was blown by Conan the Barbarian. Warrior. Starts Friday at a theater near you. This is John Milius and Oliver Stone at their most erect. <laughs> One of the reasons we got the glut of sort of sword and sorcery films right around this time, and this happened again with The Abyss at the end of the decade, Cameron announced The Abyss. People hadn't even seen it, and they started ripping it off. So by the time it got to theaters, there were like nine movies that people were like, I know what he's going to do. It's going to be a giant monster. It's going to be underwater, and that's what it's going to be. So we're going to do it first. Giant monster underwater. Here we go. There's like nine underwater monster movies, which wasn't what The Abyss was. So they all look like idiots trying to rip them off. With Conan the Barbarian, it was the same thing. They had planted the flag, and they had announced they were making this thing. They were hiring the very best people they could find to make this. And as a result, everybody was shoveling sword and sorcery stuff through quickly so that they would be in theaters around the same time. The sad thing is, Conan the Barbarian was not the monster hit, and it's a shame, because I think Conan the Barbarian is amazing. I think John Milius, the, the original scripts by Oliver Stone, who is still credited uh, as a co-writer on this, very little to do with the final film. And I've read the Stone drafts, and they would have been $500 million to shoot in 1982. It would have been insane, and it had more to do with monsters and giant things. It was crazy. What Milius did was he made this a story about power, and he made it a story about somebody who starts their life from a position of no power and gradually builds to have enough power to do this one thing that they want, which is to get revenge on the person who killed his father. Now, we've seen a million versions of this scene where the kid sees everybody destroyed in his village, and then he grows up and he has to go out to the bad guy. We've seen so many variations on it. I would argue we've seen very few variations as well done as this. Conan's origin, just the first 10 minutes of this movie, whether it's his father telling him the story about the riddle of steel or talking about Krom or whether it's the way his mother's presence registers or whether it's the way Thulsa Doom finally deals with all of that as he raids the village. That opening is epic and mythic and 100% pulled me in in the theater. So whatever journey Conan went on after that, I was with him. What I like about it is that it's not playing high fantasy as if it's dumb. It's so easy to make this stuff come, uh, like, accidentally make it silly. 
And there are there are a few moments in the movie where it doesn't. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. That's the thing. If this movie had been more of lamentations of the women, it would be a painful to watch. That those moments are well, they benefit enormously from the presence of Sandal Bergman, who is fucking awesome as Valeria in this film. She's great in this. She's great. She owns him from the moment she meets him. She owns him. And it is awesome to watch how she she is so much more aware of things and so much uh, so far ahead of him. Most of the time, their first encounter during that whole uh, snake temple raid hilarious i love jerry lopez professional surfer jerry lopez playing Subatoy, king of thieves i love the chemistry between all of them I, jerry lopez is a fucking nutty choice to put in a fantasy film in the first place and yet awesome if this was all you knew him from he's perfect as Subatoy. you benefit from mako it's so weird that you have the guy with the best voice in show business james earl jones Aha. and yet he's not our narrator it's mako who Turns out to be the perfect narrator for this. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And on to this, Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. I love that the film isn't afraid to be funny, even when it's really weird, whether it's Arnold punching out a horse or a camel. Yeah. Or just little reactions. Like, it's knowledgeably, it's intentionally funny. Yeah, it's got some great special effects. The, uh, the, the whole snake bit, I love that. Uh, James Earl Jones is a ridiculously evil villain. I mean, such an enjoyably evil man. It's just like there's no humanity to this character. He's completely evil, and he's James Earl Jones is so great. He's usually a very warm and inviting character uh, in movies, and to see him play just this ice-cold monster. And maybe Star Wars is what put him in the conversation, but it's still a really cool choice, and I love that James Earl Jones is... He is quiet in this movie. Oh yeah, he's monstrously evil, but he's very quiet. Yeah, that that's he's not he's not chewing scenery or nothing. There's a great scene. I've always been fascinated by the origin of the word assassin. And it's based on this whole thing where there was this cult leader named Ibn Il Sabah who had these um murderers that he kept uh loyal by using drugs and he would get them really really stoned on opiates and he would take them to this garden and tell them it was heaven and the only way to get to heaven was through his magical drugs and the only way to get those was to go out and kill people and the hashish that he used got them the name the hashishans which became assassins later there's a very famous story about ibn el sabah trying to tell somebody what kind of control he had over them and to demonstrate the control he pointed at somebody on a high tower and said you jump and they just jumped without a question and died. And he was like, that, that's power. I love that Milius uses that beat in this movie and has James Earl Jones do that. It's clear that what Milius did was he pulled from not only historical stories, but from Robert Howard's work and from everything else to create a really effective sort of 
cult leader in Thulsa Doom. And it pays off because you buy the cult. You buy that he would have this kind of influence in this world. And watching Conan work his way towards him, he really has to get through all the fanaticism around him, which is, I, I think, really well done and well built. Well, the film is also world famous for being the uh, the big springboard for Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger and his career as an action star. While he might not be the best at emoting dialogue or necessarily conveying emotion at this early point in his career, his physical presence is dominating and effective in a, in a way that helps him carry the film, even though he's not at this point all that good of an actor. He even benefits, though, from the supporting cast. Sandal Bergman is so good with him that he's better in those scenes. When she tells him that she loves him and there's that scene where they've stolen the jewel and they're together... He's good in that scene. And it almost like Melius almost knew, look, you have a very thick accent. You're not very experienced with acting. I'm going to keep your dialogue and your emotional uh, level in check so that we don't go over the top and, and it'll make, you know, uh, make, it, make it laughable. It also helps that every word in his mouth is a really good word in this movie. Throughout the whole movie, there is wonderful dialogue and really and fun stuff and meaty stuff. And so, you know, whether it's him at the end talking about his prayer to Crom and how he doesn't believe, that's a great moment. And it's written well. So Arnold gets the benefit of he's got great things to say. So even though the accent's crazy and he's not as adept yet, the material's there. And everybody around him is so good that it elevates him. Right. And if you want to sum up the 80s in one final point before we sign off on this episode... It's that guys like, like me and Drew grew up in love with Conan the Barbarian. We watched every kind of knockoff and ripoff and Frank Frazetta album, you know, heavy metal magazine, whatever. We wanted to, we got into that high fantasy stuff and we really liked it. And we were so excited because what? Universal was putting out a sequel called Conan the Destroyer. Conan the Destroyer is everything that Co like a Conan the Barbarian avoided being. Oh yeah, we'll get, we'll get there and I will, I, you will hear the lamentations of Drew McQueenie. All right, so I want to thank everybody for tuning into this long episode. We have some great highlights next month. We want to remind you, if you don't mind, promote the show. Uh, join our Patreon patron page. Join up. Get the free – not the free. If you're joining, it's not free. Silly. If you subscribe, you get all the bonus episodes that we do on alternate weeks. And uh, we have some great ideas for new bonus episodes. Drew, sign us out. Next time, we're going to do an adaptation, a film adaptation of one of the biggest rock albums of all time. We're going to do a sequel that saved a franchise. We're going to do a sadly painful comedy vehicle starring two of my favorite people in a film I can barely tolerate. And not one, but two movies directed by Steven Spielberg. Wait, what? What? All that plus the best day in movie history? Dude, we will see you for June 1982. Ah! Uh -huh.